I try to be approachable but, and not be intimidating with my knowledge. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk with your doctor. This podcast discusses off-label indications for medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, but most people know me as Kidney Boy. Tonight, I'm joined by the full filtrate and special guest, Josh Waitzman from some hospital in Boston. Josh, why don't you introduce yourself? For sure. So I'm Josh Waitzman. I'm a nephrology research fellow at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I tweet at at jwaits. Josh, what's a research fellow? It means I just spend time in the lab because I don't know what else to do with my life. Okay. And where'd you do your fellowship? For sure. So I did my internal medicine residency in Northwestern. I did two years of nephrology fellowship at Northwestern as well, and then transferred here to Beth Israel this past summer. And like, how long are you going to be a research fellow? Until I decide everyone agrees that I should get a job. So hopefully not too long. And uh, and whose lab are you in? I'm in the laboratory, Martin Pollock. Oh. Who's that? (laughs) Just kidding. Did you listen to this? Okay, and we have a policy that we don't name drop without explaining who the person is. Can you, Josh, who's who's this Pollock? For sure. So Martin Pollock is the chief of the Division of Nephrology at Beth Israel. He's best known as a genetics in nephrology person. Uh, He identified a couple of the key genes for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. And the one that most people have heard of is called ApoL1 or apolipoprotein L1. Is responsible for most cases of FSGS in African Americans. Outstanding. Um, and then we're joined by the full filtrate, uh, Swap. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmath. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada, and I tweet at H Swapnil. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lynn. I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lynn. Samira? I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I tweet at S.S. Farouk. And Matt. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University, and I also have a special affinity for the renin-angiotensin system. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. Josh, we didn't get your your, uh, Twitter handle. Sure. It's jwaitz, J-W-A-I-T-Z. Excellent. So tonight, it's uh, April 9th, and we are recording on the 100th day since China alerted the WHO about SARS-CoV-2. It's been almost four weeks since corona showed up in Michigan, and rounding the hospital this past week, the weirdness has started to feel familiar. It was still eerie and otherworldly, but it felt less like a movie set and more like, this is our life now. There was a time, not so long ago, that we thought of post-COVID to be much like pre-COVID, but I think it's starting to be evident that there isn't going to be a real post-COVID life. We are starting to see that the world has been remade with a lethal, communicable disease just as part of the landscape. And it's unclear how disruptive that will be, but this isn't going away. And so we're going to need to adapt and bring back the institutions in ways that are adapted to COVID. And one of those institutions that we have control of is NEFJC. And this week we did our first real NEFJC journal club since March 11th. It was kind of a classic NEFJC journal comparison of corticosteroids and tacrolimus for the treatment of minimal change disease. 
a few weeks ago, I tweeted a picture of a patient's uh, proteinuria, albumin, and serum cholesterol over the last few months. And this patient had minimal change disease, and they came to me and they were a mass cholesterol was 350, 380 on statin treatment, and their albumin was in the toilet, and they had 12 grams of proteinuria. And I put them on, you know, kind of a standard dose of steroids, and everything normalized in about six weeks. And my tweet was, if I had a job where all I could do was treat minimal change disease, I'd take it in a minute. I really do think this is one of the most rewarding diseases that we treat as nephrologists. Patients come to us miserable. We can pretty very quickly identify what's going on, put them on a highly effective therapy, and at least initially, we get a great response. And so in the face of this highly effective therapy, uh, we have these researchers that were trying to find a better therapy for this. And that's, that's a difficult order. So, uh, Swap, why don't, you, why don't you tell us how they went about trying to, to determine this? So this is uh, the, uh, the full title is the Randomized Controlled Trial of Tacrolimus and Prednisolone Monotherapy for Adults with De Novo Minimal Change Disease. And it's been called the MINTAC trial, M-I-N-T-A-C, I guess minimal change and tacrolimus trial, and that's how we might refer to it as. So the trial itself is done from the UK um, at six centers in the UK. It was funded by the National Institutes of Health Research in the UK, which is sort of like the British version of the NIH. They took patients who had de novo minimal change disease, adult patients who are more than 18 years of age, so the inclusion criteria, and they're having nephrotic syndrome. It's kind of a soft definition. They needed to have an albumin which is low, less than three grams per deciliter, but also uh, the proteinuria was you know, more than a gram. Um, and uh, they, in, in terms of exclusion criteria, they shouldn't be, have been pregnant, they didn't have any active disease or any active viral or any viral infection. So uh, reasonably you know, simple inclusion and exclusion criteria. As far as the interventions were concerned, it was either tacrolimus, randomized to tacrolimus versus prednisolone. It was an open-label trial, so there was no uh, blinding involved. Uh, the tacrolimus uh, dose was 0.05 milligram per kilogram in uh, two doses, and the levels they were aiming for was uh, 6 to 8 uh, for target drop levels for tacrolimus. And at week 8, if there was uh, inadequate clinical response, they went up to 9 to 12 uh, nanogram per ml. Though they though uh, they didn't get, steroids didn't get that same option. They weren't able to titrate up the dose of steroids if those weren't effective. Exactly. Um, and, and 12 weeks after achieving complete remission, the tacrolimus levels were titrated down. Uh, so, so even after achieving remission, it wasn't that one would titrate the tacrolimus down right away. They would get tacrolimus for 12 more weeks, and then the doses would be titrated down over eight weeks and stopped. And that's something we know with the tacrolimus, uh, with CNIs and uh, nephrotic syndrome in minimal change there, that if we stop them immediately, you will often see a, a bump up in proteinuria. So they gave some time after that. On the other hand, prednisone, prednisolone was one milligram per kilogram per day with a max dose of 60. And uh, for prednisolone, they waited one week after achieving remission and then the steroid dose was halved for four to six weeks and then reduced over the next uh, six weeks. And they received a minimum of 16 weeks of prednisolone. Uh, if you were on steroids, they got calcium and uh, vitamin D as well, uh, along with uh, omeprazole. In terms of outcomes, the primary outcome, so this is uh, where you know the discussion is sort of important, is the primary outcome was the uh, proportion of patients who achieved complete remission of the nephrotic syndrome at eight weeks. Uh, 
um, and there were secondary outcomes of the proportion of patients who achieved complete response at 16 weeks and 26 weeks. Uh, another secondary outcome was the proportion of patients who relapsed because the concern with tacrolimus is that perhaps you know you stop tacrolimus and the disease might come back. Uh, there was a change in serum creatinine, again appropriate because tacrolimus can be nephrotoxic. And lastly, the rates of adverse events, which is important here because one of the main reasons to try tacrolimus in the first place is because patients, a lot of patients don't like steroids and the steroid side effects. Uh, and hopefully the uh, side effects with tacrolimus would be different or perhaps lower. Um, the, the definitions of complete and partial remission are reasonable uh, with, you know, decrease in proteinuria to less than 50 milligram per millimole for uh, the protein to creatinine ratio and a partial remission being a 50% uh, decrease. Um, and uh, so for, for power analysis and stats, so this was a non-inferiority trial. And if your head starts hurting, uh, we have a few blog posts on the FJC which talk about how uh, a, a non-inferiority trials designed and, and performed. And, and you would think about why, right? So steroids are pretty good uh, and it's hard to beat something that is pretty good. Uh, so the aim here was not to find something that is better than steroids. It was trying to find something that is almost as good as steroids, but might be better in some other way. So something that is almost as good as steroids, but does not have the side effects of steroids, right? And the trick, which is tacrolimus. The tricky thing, kind of statistically, is if you don't have a statistical difference, that does we we're used to saying, oh, that there's no difference between these two treatments, but you got to be careful not to confuse underpowered with no difference. And that's the whole point of the non-inferiority trial is just missing your p-value and say, oh, the two drugs are the same, but we need to be able to differentiate between not having a significant difference between the two drugs because it was underpowered and not having a difference between the two drugs because they are equally effective. Exactly. And so something like, uh, you know, people would say, hey, if you're doing a trial like that, why don't you aim for equivalency where you see a zero difference? The problem is if you want to have a, a two arms which have zero difference, you need a sample size which is, you know, like infinity or a, a million patients, uh, which is hard. So then what, what do we do with non-inferiority trials is say... Well, I'll tell you, yeah. the introduction says 25% of all nephrotic syndromes are due to minimal change disease. I don't know where they got that data. That is such a bunch of BS. <laughs> right, I, get, I mean, no, I mean, really, I mean, you think about it, all, all the women with uh, preeclampsia, they get nephrotic syndrome. We're not going to count them. All the patients with diabetes to get diabetic nephropathy, that's gazillion patients. We're not going to include them. They must have, it must have been a very, very selective group to get 25%. And if it was oh 25%, they, would, they should be able to get a large sample size. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be aiming for, for 50 patients. So, so they chose, uh, and, and what you're supposed to choose is like, okay, you know, let's say it's 60% is the response rate. Uh, so would you be happy with 55, 45, 50? So that's what is a clinical uh, um, minimally significant difference that you're looking for because there is some other benefit that the intervention has, you know, in this case, perhaps less side effects. Sometimes with non-inferiority trials, uh, the, the comparator drug may be cheaper or it may be easier to give, you know, something that is oral instead of intravenous or what have you. So there has to be some other advantage, which is why you're choosing something that may be potentially inferior by a small margin that is acceptable. So in this case, they chose a margin of 10%. So the margin they were shooting for. So if tacrolimus was 10% lower, or rather the 95% confidence were interval for the proportion of remission with tacrolimus were 10% lower, it would be considered non-inferior. Right. And, and we can and see is, with the results. This is the point where you've got to ask yourself as a clinician, if this drug was you know, essentially 90% as good as steroids, would you accept that? 
And I, th- I think that's a reasonable guess. I think I, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm fine with that. What do you think, Josh? I agree. I, I think, like you had said, steroids are such an effective therapy, and this is such like a great hook as a student or as a resident or as a fellow. You see a patient with minimal change disease, you see them get steroids, you see them get better. So it'd be really nice to have a therapy that's as good. But I think 90% as good is really pretty good. And, and we see a lot of the awful side effects of steroids in our patients as we do follow up. So I think 90% is good with less side effects. Sounds pretty good to me. So Anybody did, so here? Did they, did they pick that margin just, just because they felt like that was clinically relevant? I know sometimes margins come from prior trials or other data. I didn't see anything that they pointed to. Yeah. Yeah, so so ideally, you know, you should, let's say you get a survey of people and say, hey, what would be acceptable for you? That's how people are supposed to find a non-inferiority margin. Or, you know, like uh, during the chat, Kevin Fowler was talking about, you know, patient reported outcomes. And this would be a wonderful place where you get patients' opinion about, hey, what do you think would be acceptable for you? Uh, You don't like steroids, so what would be acceptable for you? And maybe you could take patients who have been through steroids and minimal change. So some kind of that is often what is useful. Uh, but having yeah, said Kevin, that, often Kevin's power point, and... Sam- Kevin's point was interesting because we think of tacrylimus as being this easy drug to take and not to have many side effects. And he was pretty vocal about, hey, I was, I'm was i on a relatively low levels of tacro, but I, he was he was talking about, I think it was, uh, he had... Tremors. Uh, uh, Neurotoxicity. Neurotoxicity, yeah. yeah, he had a little tremor from that. And, and I don't know, I, I would I would agree. Um, I have a lot of patients on tacrylimus and we, we've been switching people a lot to bilatacept and even within a week, they're just telling us that even though they didn't really express symptoms before, that they just feel better. It may just be kind of this lower level neurotoxicity, but they didn't even know that they could feel better and we take the tack away and there's clinical improvement. So I think it's it's not as easy as, you know, as you said, um, as we think, and um, definitely side effects, but on the other hand, different side effects than what you're getting with the, the high-dose steroid. Yeah, and with the adverse effects, again, this was an open-label trial where I think for, for proteinuria, it doesn't matter because proteinuria is pretty objective, but for ad- adverse effects, having a blinded trial would have been uh, uh, much cleaner. I mean, another reason to take tacrolimus, and I'm going to segue into my capsulology for the day. Excellent. Yes, I was hoping um, for that. So, <clears throat> this, is, this is open label. Come on. What's capsulology? Yeah. Um, so it's going to be capsulology plus a little bit of history. And also, I love calcineurin inhibitors. So tacrolimus, um, I actually, I feel like I learn something new about it every time I read about it. Um, it actually has another name that I didn't know, Fujimycin. Um, the other name is FK506 because the mechanism mechanism of action is binding to the immunophilin um, FK binding protein. And so how it's administered is either in a capsule formation that has powder inside, so that can be taken orally. Um, if you have a patient that can't, can't do that, you can actually open the capsule and give the powder uh, sublingually, which, which can become very relevant in the... In, uh, clinical setting. What, what about opening the capsule and snorting it? Is that acceptable? Um, uh, we, we can set up that trial. Um, okay. Get that Looking going next week. Looking forward um, to that. Um, and there is also a uh, liquid formulation that um, some of our, our patients uh, may take. And there is also an intravenous formulation that we don't generally use in practice. It's pretty hard to titrate and so usually reserved for more kind of extreme scenarios. Um, so the, the drug itself, um, the capsule is actually what I would call a pretty capsule. Um, the, it is, the colors are varied based on the dosing, and they're very like... Uh, Joel, I'm going to send you the link for the show notes, um, but every capsule has two colors. So it'll be like a gray with a pink or a gray with a blue. And so um, I think that's designed for patients that may be on kind of odd doses and have to mix two different types of um, um, dosing sizes together. 
I take it that's only for name brand uh, ProGraph? Um, so I actually looked at a, a chart of many different brands, and even the ones that are not the, the ProGraph brand also have these kind of very vibrant colors. And just a word about the history. Um, so um, tacrylamus is, a, by definition, a macrolide lactone. Um, it was first discovered in 1987 from the uh, fermentation broth of a Japanese soil sample that contained this bacteria called Streptomyces Sucuba ensis, and actually it's named Tacrolimus because it is a Sucuba macrolide, so that's where the tack part comes from. So um, I think that's my bit for today. Oh, and another thing I learned that Tacrolimus is used to treat dry eye syndrome in cats and dogs. I don't know if anyone has experience with that. No. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> no experience with dry eyes and cats and dogs. No. Uh, we'll do that for next week's NFJC. Swap, is there anything else in the methods that we need to talk about? They, so they were expecting they were expecting a difference um, of... 10%, uh, right? They thought that acrylimus would be 84 and uh, prednisolone would be 60%. Uh, and we can see with the results where we ended up with. They were expecting you know, to, it was, to have a higher remission rate than steroids. Yep. And they were only shooting for 64% remission rate with steroids? Really? Yeah. Okay. Everybody got a biopsy, and biopsies were read locally unless there was a confusion and they didn't really know, then they were centrally read. And I think they had to throw out a couple of them because uh, the biopsies were not minimal change disease when they finally looked at them. Okay, Jenny, you got some results for us? Yeah. You know, as Swap mentioned, uh, there were 50 patients with de novo minimal change disease enrolled. 25 in the TAC arm, 25 in the steroid arm. Wait a and second. these 50 patients? 50. Okay. Five zero. This is like in the mouse range. <laughs> Wait, how many mice do you have right now, Matt? Uh, a lot fewer than you did a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. He's been expanding. I've been expanding. Oh. The ace guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm holding out. How many cages? They're they're proliferating in isolation. It's a lot. I'm not going to – I'd rather not say in a public okay. forum. More than 50 cages for sure. Uh, um, double that. <laughs> Right, so small sample size, but the arms were fairly evenly matched in terms of characteristics. These included age, self-reported race with the majority being white, blood pressure, high EGFR, and ser low serum albumin. One thing I will point out, though, is the TAC group had a higher UPC, so corresponding to about 7.7 .7 grams of protein per day, while the steroid group was 6.5. It was interesting. They made a big deal in the methods that they were going to allow people all the way down to one gram per day. Um, and they had an interesting explanation. They, and I had not, I'd never seen this. They were, they were talking about that some people have such bad nephrotic syndrome, their serum albumin gets very low and that prevents them from excreting a lot of urinary protein. I'd never heard that explanation before. And I certainly had, had not seen that, but it turns out nobody, there was almost nobody in the cohort that had low proteinuria. I've never heard of minimal change with low proteinuria. Never yeah, seen it. They, I mean, they, they designed the trial to accept people down to one gram. Mm-hmm. But I think there's. Do they have a cutoff for for the pathology for percentage of podocyte effacement? No, no I, I did not think see so. that. Sorry about that, Jenny. Keep sorry about that. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Carrying on. Uh, so the primary outcome, which you remember, is complete remission at eight weeks. The steroid group achieved eighty-four percent complete remission, or eighty-four percent of the group. Sorry. It, achieved complete remission versus 68% of the TAC group. Wait, stop. So that's reverse of what they expected when they did their power analysis, right? They expected 80% with the TAC exactly. group, yeah. and they got 80% with the steroids, and 60% steroid group. Okay. Right. Okay. 
68%. And so this led to a 16% difference that did not fall within that non-inferiority margin of 10%. Um, going back to the non-inferiority margins, if you remember from the mentor trial, they had called that one at 15%. You know, in terms of setting an a priori margin, we don't know the rationale. I don't remember the mentor trial. Can you just remind me what the mentor <laughs> trial was? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, mentor. Okay. It was uh, Reduximab. Rituximab versus cyclosporin. In, in membranes. For, for uh, anti- Membrane. Membranous. Uh, membranous. Membranous. For membranous. Yes, of course. Are we, are we sure he should still be the, the host of this podcast? <laughs> 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 that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. There Josh. Was lot, that was a lot of COVID pictures. We prepare for one one of these things, and the next, <laughs> the next one we, for, we just dump it. It's just like med school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all the glomerular people are just raging right now listening to this. Raving, <laughs> raving. Raving. Okay. Okay. okay so in so, Mentor, they used a 15% difference. Mm-hmm. And that. And like their sample size, uh, yeah, they're, they were about double this, I believe, like 60 something per arm. And they, mm-hmm. they survived their non inferiority trial, right? That was a positive. Yes. They, they yeah. were non inferior. This they one. non inferior. Now, they, the confidence intervals cross that 10% range. So it was not inferior, but it was not non-inferior. Do I have that right? So they they cross 0%, right? That's why. If they would not have crossed even 0%, then that would have become trickier. Yeah. But we have neither inferior nor non-inferior. Yes. That's, that's where we're so living right now. Non, non-inferiority not shown is how... Non-inferiority yes. not shown and not inferior. Okay. All these double negatives. That, it's, but that, right, this it's, like is, the, yeah. it's like the WHO giving a, a warning about instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 uh, there's a very nice paper um, that, uh, you know, Mansi wrote a... Mansi Bapat wrote a very nice post she on uh, understanding non-inferiority. And, and the paper which I would recommend if you want to read it is called Through the Looking Glass. Because it's sort of like a mirror, right? Everything is reversed uh, and it becomes, you know, you have to wrap your head around that. It's, and there's a very nice figure which we have in the uh, summary post. Yeah, that, that, that was helpful. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's eight weeks. Well, and then they have secondary Going outcomes. Secondary outcomes. So for 16 weeks, it was 92% of the steroid group achieving complete remission versus 76. See, that's what I'm talking about. 92% of people going into remission, you know, at eight weeks is amazing. Yeah, and so that's about a 16% difference again. At 26 weeks, that margin closed more. Can you remind us again what uh, they define prim- uh, complete remission is? They had to have a stable it creatinine less, and proteinuria was down to like, like less than 50. Yeah, it was really per low. Day, yeah. I mean, going back to the patient reported outcomes, I don't, I've not seen a lot of adults with minimal change, but the ones that I have seen, it's the massive swelling that they just cannot stand. And once that goes away, they are just, it's just like a new person. So I'm sort of looking at this and I'm trying to understand like the figure, the A, a and B panel of figure two. And like, I'm trying to f- understand like, how long did it take to get the swelling off? That's what I would want to know if I had this. Like, can I get the swelling to go down? And, and that's the thing with, with steroids you see, right? If it works, it's like the the they start diuresing. So is that and we don't really know that data from this these graphs? No, yeah, but, no. We, but at four weeks, the, are, the remission was yeah. If they're in complete remission, they're not going to have any edema. They got so, 50 milligrams. I'm looking at though the tacro sort of curve sort of lags by about two to four weeks. On yeah, the, no, there's no uh, doubt. Tacro finally gets up to 
what they they're just they're just a hair below their their non inferiority. It was like eleven percent difference rather than ten percent difference at twenty four weeks. Is that right? That's right. So that's why I want to have one of my endpoints: time to no edema in minimal change. But <laughs> all right, you're going to design that for your mice, right? No edema in their legs. <laughs> time to no edema. Their little paws. I just want to go to the to the physician and say, when can this edema leave me? And I, and I, that's what I want to know. The the interesting thing is that Figure Two B, where they combine complete and partial remission, the two lines completely overlap. Like Tacro yeah. doesn't quite get them to complete remission, but partial remission was actually uh, I forget what was the definition. I think it was like less than a gram proteinuria. It's pretty good. 50% decrease, yeah. A 50% decrease. And there was also a limit. They also had to be less than some number, right? Yeah, yeah, less than the when you're When your patients in the office, do they care how much proteinuria they have? Or symptoms? There was no... This is really from another era. There's no really patient-reported outcomes in this study, except for the adverse events, right? Adverse, yeah. What we have is we have time, four time, three time courses, eight weeks, 16 weeks, 24 weeks, and they miss their non-inferiority on all three. They're almost as good at 24 weeks. Right. But even at 24 weeks, the 95% confidence interval is minus 17 to plus 25. Really wide. So it still crosses the 10%, right? So it, it is not non-inferior throughout. Okay. Okay. What about relapse, Jenny? Yeah. So they were, they were about the same between the two groups. And also the delta serum creatinine was about the same. And there weren't, uh, there weren't any, although the adverse events differed between the two groups, just in terms of the pharmacology of the drug, it wasn't like steroids has significantly more adverse events than the TAC. So let's, let's do, let's, let's first talk about the relapse rate. So I was actually, I was a little surprised at how high their relapse rate was, right? They had like, they had like 70 by, by 78 weeks, it looks like about 70% of patients had relapsed. Which made me feel better about my patients' relapse. I didn't realize. I thought <laughs> most of the, most patients are relapsing. Two thirds of patients or three quarters of patients are relapsing. If you go if you go out a year and a half. And I'm sorry. What what's their definition of relapse? It does make me feel like I've let these patients leave clinic and not follow up with me ever again. Maybe a little prematurely. If I knew that two thirds of them were going to relapse when they walked out the door, <laughs> you know, it feels like we should be having them come back maybe that six months every so often check in. Uh, as opposed to just call if it's call if you need us, kind of hand the card and go. I, I do find it hard for them to. Oftentimes they don't come back, and then and it's like you're not sure. You know, they're just like, well, I'm in edema, and it seems like it's gone. So, like, in my experience, when they relapse, it's not right. subtle. Exactly. Like, well, that's why I they, say come, the definition. they come running back to your office. So often in renal failure, always with a lot of edema. That's why the definition is very important for that data. So, so, so the definition is 300 milligram per millimole, That's a pretty which I think would be three grams. grams. Yeah. That's three grams. That's three okay. grams. It would be three grams. It is nephrotic. It is nephrotic. 300 uh, milligrams over 24 hours. So it's three no, grams. No, no. That's uh, they, they were using. They're, they're from. They're using non-American units. It threw me the whole paper. Canadian. <laughs> yeah. What journal was this published in? The Canadian Journal of American Society. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. The C standard for it was Canadian. <laughs> I hope Raj is not listening. Uh, sorry, Raj. Uh, love, I love C. Jason to death. Stands oh for gosh. clinical for anyone confused. Right. It's it's yeah. It's the clinical journal of the of the American Society of Nephrology, and they should right, use for, American, any the, for any of the non-nephrologists. That's right. Grams per gram creatinine. Freedom units. <laughs> Freedom units. <laughs>
Okay, so we think, okay, so relapse is defined as three grams per 24 hours, classic nephrotic syndrome definition. 70% of people are relapsing if you stretch it out to 78 weeks, uh, but there is no difference between the two. But remember, the clock starts from the point of complete remission, but they still get full dose tacro for 12 more weeks. No, it was, yeah, it was 12 more weeks right. before they then weaned over another six weeks while steroids get cut in half a week after they get complete remission. This sounds just like mentors. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think that, that, yeah. that, that was. Mm-hmm. The kid gloves that calcineurin inhibitors get, that they get to stay on them for a long period of time. I think somebody mentioned in the chat, I think it was Michelle, said maybe they should have measured relapse rate from the time that they were off drug, which would right. be fair for both drugs. Mm-hmm. So the relapses rate was the same, but they definitely seemed to stack the deck on the calcineurin inhibitor side. Um, and then, and then I want I wanted to talk about that before we get to um, adverse events. Talk about adverse events. Yeah, there was no big difference in terms of numbers. As no, there were no difference, but I, I'm looking at that. They had one person gain weight. There's that's impossible <laughs> on steroids. <laughs> like that's evidence that they weren't even taking the drug. <laughs> like, but they lost all the water weight, been, right? They lost all yeah. the water weight. <laughs> oh, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it's a minimal change. Yeah, it's not FSGS or whatever, right? It, it worked. Uh, but but again, it was open label, right? It would have been cool to have a blinded trial. I mean, all my patients on steroids gain weight, except, I, for, you know, except I, for minimal change. I hope even the minimal change ones, right? <laughs> like the first thing they'll be excited about is when does the swelling come off then. Soon after, it's going to be, when can I stop taking this damn medicine? And I think that should be your second patient-reported outcome after when the edema goes away. Yeah. It's exciting for a few weeks, is what you're saying. It is. One patient with hyperglycemia with the steroids, one patient with weight gain with the steroids. Just not my experience with the drug. And and I guess, though, I do taper it slower than they did. I thought their taper was actually pretty quick. It seemed quick. Yeah, they kind of halved it. and then I tend to run them a little longer than that. But they didn't find the big benefit in the uh, adverse events that we were hoping for or expecting to with the use of uh, calcineurin inhibitors over steroids. Anybody have any discussion topics on this? What what do you guys think? A lot of people in the discussion were like, hey, this is a big win for calcineurin inhibitors. Um, And Joel and I were saying no. And we were saying it is non, it failed non-inferiority. So it was sold. And and like, that's my problem with the, sorry, with the visual abstracts also. It's sometimes... The weaknesses and limitations don't come across, right? People look at the numbers, hey, you know, 84 and 82 or whatever, and hey, no, no, the p-values are not different. So they don't read, you know, you have to go beyond that and and, and see that it to be nitpicky. Uh, I, I do nitpick nits, unlike Joel. Uh, it it was, it failed non-inferiority, right? How about, the, but if you had a patient who came to you and you gave, them, you gave them the spiel about steroids and you talked about the diabetes and the weight gain and the acne and the adverse, and, and they have a psych history maybe, and you said, we're going to put you on these steroids and it could mess all that stuff up. And they were like, Doc, I don't want to do that. I, I would feel pretty good about giving them tacrylimus based on this data. I was like, it's not going to be as fast, but it looks like it gets to the same location. Drew, what does Max say? Oh, um, I mean... You know, it's a small study, uh, adds to the arsenal. I think I'll still stick with steroids in this disease. Uh, but if there are reasons why I want to avoid it, then I might try tacrolimus. So I had a question based on the failing non-inferiority idea. And this is just because I don't understand statistics as well as I probably should. Um, but I think it was Marvin Gonzalez in the chat had mentioned this really inspires a larger trial. 
uh, is it wrong to view this kind of data as hypothesis generating and then inspiring a larger trial that we can then get better data from to see if this is actually non-inferior or, or equivalent in some other way? Or is that the wrong way to look at this smaller trial that we have? Uh, you, you definitely can look at it as, as if you're not convinced, then you could sh- say, hey, uh, our assumptions were wrong. They're, obviously, their assumptions yeah. about the uh, remission rates were, were wrong. Uh, so you can use the data from this to design uh, a non-inferiority trial. And again, every trial is a lesson, right? Uh, we, we learn from one study and do a better study. Um, is eight weeks the right time, right? Um, even if you chose a larger sample size, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm not pretty sure, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a large trial showed non-inferiority at eight weeks. Uh, but then at uh, 20 weeks, it was not, you know, it was non-inferior truly. Uh, from a patient perspective, does that matter? You know, and Matt's point is right. Maybe it does matter. Um, so those kind of things are, are important to think about. Uh, I'm not sure where a larger trial would end up with. Uh, maybe would that 16 person? Well, those co- those confidence intervals should shrink, right? That's part of the issue here is a it, really wide confidence interval. And the thing is, though, you look right. at this as a publicly funded study unlikely we're going to have better evidence. You have two drugs that work fairly well, one that probably better than the other. So I think this is probably the best we're going to get for a while. And honestly, if I were going to randomize patients with minimal change disease, I'd want to try a different agent. I'd want to try rituximab, right? Because there's been a lot of data on rituximab in patients with frequently relapsing, which it seems like the real issue here, which is what the pediatrician has been dealing with forever, is what do you do with these relapses. We see 70% of these people are relapsing by a year and a quarter or what have you. That's the that's the frontier that needs to be established. We know we can put people in remission. You can do it with tacro, you can do it with steroids. This disease is not conquered in the other in regards to relapses. Okay. Yeah. So. But, but do we know, uh, is there anything from the mechanism world that would tell us that, you know, this is not, is this a B cell disease that reducts It's supposed to be a T cell better? disease. That's what everybody's right. saying, yeah. Right, so why, why rituximab? Because I've heard, the I've heard rumors is, of uh, some percolating things in the literature, but I'm not going to say it on this. Uh, is it is it like a complement-mediated disease, perhaps? Uh, anybody else have anything else to talk about with this study? We're all done here. Well, Samir, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Does minimal change disease recur after transplant? I actually... But minimal change doesn't cause kidney failure, does it? Yeah. It doesn't, um, right. Just, yeah. just when you misdiagnose, is it really FSG? Was that another you trying to pit me on the podcast? <laughs> oh, Joel, stop doing that. I really... I mean, you don't even know what the mentor trial is. So like, <laughs> I, yeah. I really should be pipping anybody for anything. I'm really the worst. <laughs> like, okay. There's two or one. I can't recall. Okay. So let's get a, let's get a quick um, a COVID update. So we last recorded... It was, was that just a week last ago? Week. It was, right? Mm-hmm. It was last week. Yeah, you just released it today, um, so I had to go back and listen and to it before it. <laughs> I came down as a guest star to make sure I didn't say anything that already got said. So thanks for that. Okay. What's what's new in, in COVID world? Who, who's got something good? Uh, I can give a New York City update. Um, so wow, the, you guys got COVID in, up, in New York City? Is that, yeah, it, we're just starting there? to see a few cases trickle in. <laughs> um, so... Um, we actually I have some numbers here that we pulled together. Um, as of yesterday, um, on our non-transplant services, we had um, 105 patients um, that had detected virus, probably another 15 or so um, with um, kidney transplant or another organ. 
Um, so just really feeling a lot of strain on our entire hospital system, um, dialysis nursing, mid-level practitioners, fellows, attendings. Um, luckily, our hospital has been proactive in restructuring the way our hospital works, setting up medicine teams. Um, we, in our division, have a lot of backup um, to cover um, people who are out sick um, or recovering. Um, and really, the, I think the only way we've gotten through it is with the teamwork and um, people just chipping in um, and really willing to do whatever is asked of them. Um, so some logistical things that we've changed this week for our dialysis to really meet the needs of these patients is everyone is now standard 2.5 hours. Um, many of our patients were needing to do higher blood flows, bigger filters, um, because many of the patients with COVID infection are, for some reason, very catabolic, very high potassiums, very high um, urea levels, which we're not really sure why, um, that even after you clear them transiently are bouncing back within less than 24 hours. Yeah, um, so, we're seeing the same thing. So I had a, I had a patient that I dialyzed um, two days in a row, um, and today was day three, uh, potassium seven this morning. Um, oh. So today turned up the blood flow to 500. I did him on a zero K for two and a half hours, which never really have done that, um, and finally got it under control, but I'm sure it's going to be back up tomorrow. Um, and another exciting thing that um, we've been doing at our institution- Does the patient have rhabdo? We've been seeing a lot of Yeah, so actually I checked the CK. It's only 200. Hmm. Um, some of them have been a bit higher, um, but not in this particular one. What about haptoglobin? Because we're seeing a lot of people talking about um, hemolysis or types of or a TMA type picture is yeah, the other thing that people been, are talking about. Um, just from kind of my anecdotal experience this week, um, not consistent. Some of them are undetectable. Some of them are not really that exciting. Many mm. of them are thrombocytopenic. Um, and um, the other exciting thing that we're doing to try to um, offload some of our hemodialysis is we've started doing acute peritoneal dialysis, which is something that we've spoken about for years. Yeah. Um, and kind of finally doing it now. And so we're, we have surgeons that are placing PD catheters at the bedside um, and uh, starting PD within 24 hours. Um, and um, the alternative is we have interventional radiologists who are placing them in the IR suite. So if they're ventilated, um, it's at the bedside. Otherwise, they're coming down to the suite. Um, and we have not yet you know, included patients that are um, prone for this. So that's our kind of big exclusion criteria. But we've been doing it for a few days now and um, hoping that we can kind of expand that. How long after you place the catheter are you starting your first fill? Uh, 24 hours. And how, what kind of volume are you using on that first fill? So I have not um, ordered it myself, but I believe that I'm assuming it's probably something like 200, 250, um, pretty Mm -hmm. small volumes, I would assume, to start. Mm -hmm. Using the cycler or manuals? Um, Cycler. So we got a bunch of cyclers. um, So that's the plan for now. Um, Oh, I'm super interested to hear how that develops. That's great. Yeah. And we have a um, home dialysis fellow. It's actually um, our first year doing that. And so he's been kind of spearheading this. Um, So we have him and our two home dialysis program directors that have been kind of working around the clock to get this going. So we're pretty excited to get that together. I'm sure that's exactly what he envisioned when he signed up for the home dialysis uh, fellowship was that he was going to learn a lot about acute PD in the ICU. Yeah, I'm sure that's why he did that. (laughs) That that seems like a really smart move, though, because a week or two weeks from now when those catheters have matured more, you can actually get more reasonable volumes. You'll liberate some CRT Mm -hmm. machines that you're able to use on more people. And so I think even Mm -hmm. if you're not ready to start PD right away, it's not crazy based on your local modeling 
to think about, do I put a PD catheter in this person to save a machine a week or two weeks from now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the last thing is um, we're still having a lot of clotting catheters as well as filters. Um, so we are giving everyone heparin, um, but at a more kind of non-nephrology level, um, I think we are going to have a system-wide um, anticoagulation protocol so that all patients that are admitted with detected virus um, are going to be recommended to be started on therapeutic um, heparin drips. And so Whoa. that's something that our, our critical care and hematology teams are working on um, with our CRRT team. So that, that's going to be a big change. Huh. Matt, what are you guys seeing in, in uh, Durham? Well, we're still kind of waiting and planning. Definitely at, at Duke, we're starting to see more cases being admitted. I think there's like 25. Um, at the VA where I'm at this week, we have about um, four or five. So not a lot right now. We're still mm-hmm. uh, sort of thinking about how we're going to you know, change things. When What we're seeing, what I have been seeing, though, is a lot of outbreaks in nursing homes, uh, skilled nursing facilities, uh, prisons. Um, so that I'm really worried that that's going to really, uh, that's going to start taking off soon. Yeah. It, and it's funny, you got have one big, big outbreak in a, in a nursing home and also they'll, they'll bring in, you know, 40, 50 patients and it just, it overwhelms I mean, the there's hospital. A, uh, yeah. We've seen that happen. There's a prison, um, that goes to one of the hospitals, uh, that do at one of the smaller Duke hospitals There's 120 prisoners that have COVID right now. Oh, and so that is going to be a problem. Josh, what's uh, what's it like in Boston? So actually, personal experience, I'm mostly a research fellow, which means I mostly have clinic and I'm not allowed in inpatient service. So I have not been on the inpatient service. Yeah, we team. know you're working in Pollock's lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've actually <laughs> been, uh, been... They allow you in the lab right No. So the labs have been shut down for about two, three weeks. Uh, and then I'm drafted into backup coverage, one of the new ICUs that we're opening up here at the hospital. Um, so right now, our census had just checked is around 60 ICU patients with COVID. Uh, and that's opening up four new ICUs. ICUs that did not exist three weeks ago. Those are staffed by a mix of subspecialty fellows in medicine and surgical subspecialties. And so we're all learning how to order things and be primary teams again and how to run a ventilator again. And so I would just encourage folks who are listening really to try to stay up to date on all the general medical stuff. In addition to the nephrology specific stuff, you never know what job you're going to have to pitch in here with. Uh, And so I'm refreshing my memory of how a ventilator works and what low tidal volume ventilation is and what a PEEP is. Um, and I think those things are going to come around to all of us, depending on what the the shape of the curve looks like where you live. Are you on service yet, Jenny? Um, no, I will be, I think, in a week and a half. But I am going to be helping out with the non-COVID portion. So, yeah. So, basically, we I think we've doubled the number of inpatient consult services. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to be put on the non-COVID side. But in terms of Chicago and Northwestern, um, and I don't have any wood to knock on, but uh, we have not been reaching the capacity that we would have been predicting for now. And so also the mortality rate in at the Northwestern hospitals has actually been quite low. And I, I don't think that's representative of all of Chicago. So we're not sure if it's because of the neighborhood and the population that we are serving or, you know, if we're just catching a different demographic or if we're just actually providing that grade of care. But um, the mortality rate has been relatively low. I, I will then, tell you that uh, there's a, there is a, a lag that your sickest patient, oftentimes, not always, but a lot of the sick patients will come and they'll be in the ICU for four, five, six, seven, eight days. And then they'll 
and, and then they'll finally succumb to multi-organ failure. And so you can it, be careful about that mortality rate when you still have a lot of people on vents in ICUs because a lot of them are going to have negative outcomes and it just hasn't happened sure, yet. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I think um, currently in terms of the main hospital, we have fewer than fewer than 100 in the ICUs. So you know, we're yeah. uh, we're pretty you're lucky. You're handling situation. What's it like in Ottawa? Um, so we do have a. Uh, I was in call on the weekend. We had uh, four patients, then and it's gradually growing in the ICU, and it's gradually growing to eight uh, today. Um, so we did put in the whole social isolation thing three weeks ago. So I, I hope we have sort of clamped down a little bit early. Uh, our biggest risk factor was you know the spring break, uh, and people had traveled to Florida and everywhere else. Uh, and they all came back uh, after the things were shut down. So we probably will have a few sparks, um, which will become fires, uh, which are probably becoming fires now. Where, where in Canada are, you, are there are the hotspots? So in Canada, it started off in BC, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, in British Columbia. But just like Washington State, they seem to have handled it well and got it under control. So now their cases, they got an initial spike, but they, they seem to have sort of leveled off. Uh, but Ontario and Quebec are having uh, a, a lot of cases. And, and it's mostly, you know, even in the Montreal area, as well as in, in Ontario, it's nursing homes. It seems to be a bunch of nursing homes. There's one in our suburbs. Uh, so there have been eight uh, deaths in Ottawa, uh, but 10 deaths in this suburb uh, of Ottawa, which has a small nursing home uh, with uh, 10 people who have already died and 20 more who are sick. Uh, so, so that I think is going to be a, a bad situation. What do you guys think about this thought that all of the West Coast are having not as many cases as they thought, and so they're thinking that actually there's more herd immunity on the West Coast due to more uh, more travelers coming from Asia in the fall when they were thinking that the actual outbreak was starting. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one thought. Uh, Tony Chang, when we discussed this, he mentioned maybe there is something with genetics and ethnicity, uh, which might be different. That's an angle he likes and he keeps talking about. Well, but uh, with compliment too, right? You know, it's yeah, with compliment. One, yeah. one of the things that I noted, um, and I think I, I talked about this on the last podcast, is that a lot, we're seeing patients that are rolling in the door with advanced kidney failure that are coming in with creatinine's a 17 and 12 and potassium's a six. And you're like, oh my God, we have no no room to move and we immediately got to start them on dialysis. And I, and I talked to other people and they're like, you know, even in Detroit, they're like, no, 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 um, we're not seeing that. And uh, it kind of reminded me of um, when Hyvan was first discovered, you know, there, was, there were uh, nephrologists in New York this is HIV-associated nephropathy. They were reporting, we're seeing this terrible collapsing FSGS in these patients with uh, with HIV, and we think that this is this is a big problem. And they call their colleagues, you know, where were the other HIV hotspots? There was one in San Francisco, and they'd call their colleagues in San Francisco, and people in San Francisco saying, we're not seeing it. And then they'd call their colleagues in Europe, the other hotspots, and they were like, no, no, we're not seeing it. And it, and, you know, People say, well, what, what's the difference in New York? And New York was primarily an injection drug user population compared to uh, men having sex with men in San Francisco and in Europe. And and so initially people were saying, well, maybe this is just um, a heroin nephropathy or the talc that people were cutting heroin and causing that collapsing FSGS. It's a known, a known finding. And it took a while before people realized actually it was a racial thing, that Hyvan almost is almost exclusively uh, people of African descent. And um, 
well, that which goes right back to what uh, uh, Josh is studying, right? the ApoL1. That's the that's the key gene that causes the HIV-associated nephropathy. And so maybe the difference that I'm seeing, where we're seeing patients coming in with very advanced kidney disease early in the case, in the course of the disease, you know, right when they're admitted, is is a racial thing also. And that the hospitals that I was talking to where they're not seeing it are more suburban hospitals and have less African-Americans coming in. Joel, it's just a, it, totally. it's a really tricky place, right? Because particularly in America, ethnicity and social discrimination and social determinants of health are so tied together that it's very hard to pull those things apart. Uh, African-Americans have had very different access to transportation, very different educational opportunities, very different professional roles that have been available to them. And we've seen that play out as different rates of social distancing, even in this epidemic happen, as you look at like the reporting from the Times and stuff in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and, and I think that's true in, in the data that we've seen from Chicago, that even though 30% of the city is African-American, 70% of cases are, are in African-Americans and, and almost half the deaths are in African-Americans. Well, it was mostly, it was the, in New York City, they published the racial bank breakdown, it was terrified in terms of the percentage of deaths that were in Hispanic and uh, African-Americans. It was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, mm-hmm. I don't want to call it just biology. I don't want to call it just social in terms of the health, but it, it's definitely a place where we need to really look for, are there basic science insights here that we need to understand to figure out what's making this disease so much worse? In these communities. So how, how do you go about answering? Because this it means it, it clearly is a tricky question. What approach do you take to answer this question? How do you untangle this? Well, we need tissue. I, I'm with Jenny. I think we need tissue and we ge- we need better genetic information on these patients. And it's, it's really hard in the setting of it feels like the plane is crashing and burning as we're trying to fly it and also trying to dig it out for the next flight that we try to make. But we've got to be setting up research studies at the same time as we're trying to do as much clinical work as we can do. Should we be drawing blood and, and freezing at negative 40? kidney biopsies, as crazy as that sounds, but it's hard well, to- Well, kidney, kidney biopsies are going to be difficult to get. These, a lot of these patients are on an event. Yeah. It's, you're, asking, you're asking people, but if, we, if, you, if what you need is genetics- You can get it from purple blood, perform- sure. And I think that would even be- So a- we're, we're drawing and banking um, tons of samples. It's like a whole hospital-wide effort. So hopefully we'll have some nice data- Excellent. And there are some autopsy, like yes. rapid warm autopsies that are being performed. And so they are trying to incorporate kidney into that. We are we are thinking about safe ways to do native kidney biopsies. And um, there were a couple calls today in how to try to select those patients to, um, to see if this TMA is happening and um, anything else we might be able to learn. I also think, I th- think transplant patients would be great to biopsy as, as well. I mean, the biopsy is technically a little bit easier. Um, yeah. But again, the exposure plus patients being very sick, I think it's going to be hard to find that right patient to do it on. This may be the opportunity when the patient is prone to get the biopsy. Okay, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was <laughs> the other thing to, to recognize is that the virus has just shined a really bright light into all the uh, problems in our healthcare, and you know I think there's a great opportunity to uh, fix a lot of these social determinants that are causing their inability to access care, to be in environments where you cannot, you know, have health care. And so you've already seen like a lot of the policies that we have struggled to fix overnight were just changed, like telehealth. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting what's happening. And, you know, the world changed when this uh, pandemic 
uh, came and what happens uh, in the outset, we hope, is going to make uh, hopefully our country recognize that healthcare is ex- exceedingly important and the way we were utilizing it pre-COVID was just really not right. Well, there's nothing like having 6 million people apply for unemployment to realize the problem with tying in <clears throat> health insurance to employment, right? It's just not a good idea. Mm-hmm. No. So our, our hospital has been trying to roll out e-consults for I don't even know how long, um, but I did my first e-consult within maybe a week of this whole thing starting. I like watched it. I don't want to some webinar thing I was invited to go to and they showed like how many telehealth visits were happening per week at uh, and it was like 10 20 30 40 and then it was like 15,000 <laughs> I mean unbelievable just one day uh, so uh, and and also talk about the medical students going to learn how to do this and there's a lot of uh, discussion on Twitter I think Michelle Rowe had a nice tweet that's like how exhausted she was after uh, doing these encounters. And I think it is like when you're talking to a patient, even if they're on a video, uh, it takes a lot of mental energy to connect with them more so than in uh, a setting when you're you're with someone in person. I'll tell you, I was taking care of a a COVID patient in the hospital. And my standard move is if I go into the room and I keep my distance in the room to talk with them. And uh, this patient was hard of hearing. And every fiber in your being wants to get close to the patient when they can't hear you. And it was so hard not to do that. It really... Shaking hands has been hard too. Like I want to shake people's hands. Yeah. It's almost like it, it, you know, ends uh, your, your meeting with a person and or begins and it's it's uh, it really changes how you interact with people. Like you walk up to somebody and you like stand far away with a mask on, and no one looks the same. Like sometimes you're like, who who is that? Yeah, I definitely saw people that I've known for years did not recognize them be- behind the mask and the goggles and everything. I saw a tweet that someone like yeah. took pictures of themselves with, with pictures and from Israel and, 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 and on their, UK also. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you were saying, Sorry, I, I was just saying it's, it's a little bit early perhaps to talk about all this, but you know, there's a lot of talk about opening up and when do we open up? And, and in the last few days I've got into fights about, uh, uh, John, uh, Mandrola. Yeah, no, John Mandrola, not directly with him, but, uh, uh, Ionides, um, who's, you know, the famous researcher who talks about most published research findings being false and, and probably he's publishing something like that. So he's, he's got a paper out uh, saying, you know, young people uh, under 65 are more likely to die of vehicular accidents than COVID. And it's a horrible model. It's a terrible model that he's doing. Uh, you know, he's assuming that the number of deaths that occurred on April 4th, you just multiply them by two and that's how many people are going to die, which is ridiculous considering that, you know, this is just the start of the epidemic and, and many more bad things are going to happen. Like you said, so many of these people are still in the ICU. Yeah. Anyway, but but apart from that, uh, but I understand the feeling, right? And why John Mandrola likes this is because people are getting frustrated of of sitting, you know, inside their houses. Uh, at least, you know, as doctors and healthcare workers, we get to go out. Many other people are, uh, you know, they have this feeling. And there's a systematic review in Lancet, uh, which talked about the effects of quarantine. Uh, and, and the things they mention uh, are uh, to, to reduce the feeling is that, uh, effective and rapid communication is essential. Uh, the quarantine period should be short. 
uh, and the duration should not be changed unless in extreme circumstances. And uh, public uh, health officials should emphasize the altruistic choice of self-isolating. But, but I don't see anything, you know, to tell us that this can be short. Uh, the models that are, they are talking about in Ottawa are like a peak in May or July, May, June, something like that, um, maybe longer. One of the things that I'm dealing with is I have a patient that very early in the epidemic was a dialysis patient, tested positive, got transferred to a COVID-only dialysis unit, which is great. This is exactly how you should be doing it. And he's been there now going on his third week. When I saw him last week, he was coughing still, but it had been it was a febrile. I went there this week, no longer coughing. He's like, "How long do I have to stay here?" Davida says, uh, "15 days from the beginning of onset of symptoms, plus three days from the last symptom, plus two negative COVID tests." I don't know how to get one negative COVID. I don't know how to get a COVID test for this guy. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, Dang. he doesn't drive. I can't send him to a drive-through. It's just it. You know, it it, it they put a, it's quite a barrier for me to try to get this guy out of this COVID unit. I'm over. Yeah. And we don't really know like how long people are really shedding virus for. A hundred percent. And exactly right. So is, is, should I be trying to get him out of this unit so he can go back to a regular dialysis unit? That's what the recommendations are because this is presumably a limited resource, how many chairs they have in this COVID unit. And this guy, he does, I don't, he doesn't seem, he certainly doesn't actively have disease right now. He's on room air. Not coughing, no fever, but uh, got to figure out how to get him a couple of negative COVID tests. And the whole dialysis patients, you know, coming back and forth is such a big issue. Uh, I, I think some people have got a better handle on this than others. So locally, um, let's say I have a patient who is in a nursing home who is coming for dialysis to my hospital. My hospital has got COVID cases. Uh, now, of course, this patient is not going there. It's a separate unit. But the nursing home now says oh this patient is getting exposed yeah so they put the patient under isolation in that nursing home uh, and the nursing home is under isolation so they cannot meet their family members they cannot interact with anyone else in the nursing home yeah uh, yeah that's right it's it's uh, you know i mean i'm complaining you know we are complaining but that's nothing compared to the social isolation well, and we know, we, we know what a tinderbox these nursing homes are and i think they need to be mm -hmm. taking every every step and if they got a person who's breaking the you know social distancing and going out and going to a place where you could possibly get infected i don't think that's inappropriate it's very dangerous this is going to be tough should we uh, mm -hmm. close with uh, something positive for yeah, go for it. What's positive, Matt? I'm trying to think of something. Uh, <laughs> that's madness. You're good at this game. Yeah, yeah. Kidney con, come on. Talk about oh, kidney, kidney con. Kidney con, I forgot. Yes, we have kidney con light on Saturday, April 18th. It's uh, the first um, offering, and there hopefully will be more, uh, is a delicious pathology session from Arcana Labs. Two hours. You'll have direct access to pathologist to answer all of your pressing needs. We will talk about uh, the you know, logistics of how this is going to happen um, later, but it's going to be a two-hour session. Um, it should be fun. Nice. Excellent. Josh, what do you got that's positive? So I've been spending most of my time here at home actually being a homeschool kindergarten instructor, uh, which is making me someone more excited to go back and take care of sick ICU patients. Um, but I would say that one of the things that's bringing me a lot of joy in spending time with my son is actually some of the great online instruction that's available now. Uh, I would highly recommend, I don't know if folks have kids who are 
uh, older than mine, or even if they're younger folks, remember these books. But uh, Mo Willems, who's a children's book author who wrote Elephant and Piggy and uh, the Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus books, has these great YouTube videos where he sits and draws with kids called Lunchtime Doodles. And so every day for the last three weeks, my son and I have sat down and done drawings with him. And he's such a wonderful, reassuring presence. He really is like the Fred Rogers of our time. Uh, and he tells you how that it's okay to feel nervous and not know what's going to happen next. And doing your little part and staying at home is really helping a lot of other people. So I would highly recommend uh, Lunchtime Doodles from the Kennedy Center with Mo Willems. Jenny? I don't know if this is a positive or just an element of self-discovery, but all the social distancing and um, isolation has taught me that even though my entire life I believed myself to be an introvert, I have now discovered that I'm actually just a soft-spoken extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, it's uh, it's been it's been interesting seeing how people have been coming together, and um, I've also been reconnecting with a lot of old friends that I would not necessarily make an effort to reconnect with, and so this has actually brought, even though we are separated by physical distance, I think it has been bringing a lot of people together and having people really think about what their priorities are and uh, really uh, reconnecting. So. Nice. Excellent. Swap? I think uh, I- I'm just flabbergasted by uh, some creative juices that people have uh, expressed. You know, like, um, uh, I think people talk about uh, Frankenstein. So Mary Shelley and, uh, you know, all those guys were for some reason, they were stuck somewhere, and, and that's when she wrote uh, the book uh, Frankenstein's um, uh, Frankenstein, I guess. So I'm kind of wondering what kind of uh, creative juices are flying. I was just looking at one of Glauco's uh, TikTok videos, uh, and and he's making some hilarious videos. There's one on the uh, on him doing telehealth. Oh my god, that's so uh, funny! Oh, that, oh, is, that very, is that very is coming. <laughs> He's so expressive, uh, that guy. Anyway. It's like, like, uh, like so Chris Doss. <laughs> Chris Doss. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's it's wonderful that we have the internet, we have Twitter, right? Imagine uh, if we had to do the quarantine without all these things, without the internet. I do imagine. Samira, what do you got? Um, so th- speaking of online resources for kindergartners, um, I was thinking about NEFSIM. Uh, could be a good one for them. Absolutely. That's a great choice. Um, <laughs> totally. We've already uh, done fractions, multiplication, and division. I'm running out of uh, ideas. And it's a the NEF set stands for nephew. Okay. Um, no, but I, I was going to say, um, so we piloted a few weeks ago um, NEFSIM Live. Um, so we set up a, a virtual Zoom session, shared the link um, on, on Twitter, and basically went through um, a case that was from NEFSIM put into a PowerPoint format. Um, we used the Zoom polls to engage the participants. We had about 20 in the first session and 20 again in the second session that we did yesterday. Um, and it was a really great mix of uh, medical students, residents, fellows, and even a few nephrology attendings. And um, it's been a nice break from um, the COVID stuff for the people that join. And I also think it'll be great to continue this going, um, going forward. So we're going to try to keep doing this every two to three weeks, um, to get people engaged. And, um, it's a nice way I think for people to meet from around the world. Outstanding. Um, I had a, I had a little bit of a COVID run in myself. So I was on call last weekend and, uh, had a lot of fatigue on Saturday, went to bed at 9 PM, which I've like never done very unusual for me. And then on uh, Sunday, I started getting a scratchy throat and woke up Monday morning with a real kind of viral myalgia, just 
that muscle ache that you know that you get with a viral illness. So I was terrified that I had COVID. I called my local ID doctor. She said, yeah, don't go in, get yourself tested. So I did the, um, I called employee health, which I'm supposed to do. And they said, okay, we'll get you in on Wednesday for a test. And I was like, this is Monday. I'm like, oh, Wednesday. So then I went to um, City of Detroit, had one of these uh, drive-through COVID testing, super slick, got that done on Tuesday. And then I went for my test on Wednesday. And by that time, I still had never developed a fever and really all my symptoms had gone away. And I was like, yeah, I think this was just a false alarm. Go in for this uh, employee health test. And it was not just a swab. They did a, I had a full set of vital signs, a full history and a full physical. It was like, it was a real, it was a real checkup, including I got swabbed for influenza and I got swabbed for COVID. And then um, I was still feeling fine. I was still afebrile. I went to work and I got a text message from the doctor I saw a couple hours later saying, why don't you give me a call about your um, your positive test? I was like, oh my God, that's horrible. And I called <laughs> her up and it was influenza A. I had influenza A and I'd been vaccinated <laughs> earlier in the year. And so I think that I had the world's most mild case of influenza A, no fever, one and a half, you know, about 30 hours of mild symptoms and then nothing. And then today I got called on my COVID test, which was negative. So my my positive statement is I don't have COVID, but I had influenza. I've never been so happy to have influenza in my life. Okay, guys, thanks for joining us on uh, Freely Filtered. Uh, make sure to rate and review this podcast and uh, stay safe, everybody. Bye.